Spirit. Now speak, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, you guys. We're in the midst of a short series, Know Your Faith, uh, just uh, last week and today, but, but today is a message that stands alone, so I don't think you need to be concerned about not having been here last week if you weren't. I think you'll highly benefit from this teaching today. Largely, uh, this week, last week, have been reflections from Second Peter chapter 1, Know Your Faith. Today we want to talk about the right source, knowing your source, and we're talking about the scriptures, and the big idea is this, to draw from God's word and the promise of Christ's return with absolute confidence. I just want to speak confidence into your life about the word of God. Now, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter writes these words. He says, for this reason, and of course, when he says for this reason, he's pointing back to where we were last week. I'll catch you all up, so just be patient. Hold on a moment. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you. Do you see that word remind? I want to show it to you three times. In, once in this verse, and then two more times in the verses that follow. So if you might want to highlight that word. You might want to underline it or circle it. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So as Peter writes these words, he writes them with absolute confidence that the people he's writing to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that relationship, the word of God has come alive and it's working in their lives. Now the words present truth, do you see those? Don't let those words throw you. This is not talking about a truth that works for today but doesn't work for tomorrow. This is not about relevant uh, truth that shifts with culture, though it is very relevant to those who embrace it. It's relevant to all mankind, but it's not a subjective truth. It's an objective truth that works for all peoples in all times, in all circumstances, regardless of what someone might want to convince you or the reality that somebody might want to convince you otherwise. Therefore, to understand present truth is to understand that it's truth that is active, it's alive, and right now it's working in your life. That's what he's talking about. This is the truth that is present with you. So what I want to do is take the majority of our time today to talk about why I believe the Bible is true. Okay, we're going to get there because this is really what Peter is talking about. This is what Peter is emphasizing. But before we do, I, I just want to do a little bit of review here. Uh, Peter has some things that he wants to make sure we will never forget. In fact, as I said, three times he uses these words, remind. I want you to see those now. We've already seen that word one time in verse 12. Now watch verses 13 through 15. He says, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. 
What's he talking about when he says tent? His body, absolutely. As long as I'm alive in this body. To stir you up by, what's that next word? Reminding, second time, reminding you. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, do you know where it's recorded where Jesus Christ told Peter the kind of death that he would die? Anybody? Well, let me direct you to John chapter 21. Very important there, where Jesus describes for Peter that he would become a martyr for the faith. You might want to check that out. So he says, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a what? A reminder of these things after my decease. Peter knew he wasn't going to be around forever. This letter is a huge attempt on Peter's part to make sure that the word God has given him will never be forgotten. How quickly we forget. (laughs) Anybody have a memory problem? At all? No? (laughs) Boy, I am surprised. Things that I tell myself I'm going to do in the next second that I forget to do. Can anybody relate to that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. These two these two couples were having dinner together, just having having a great time. When when old Harry uh, told his his buddy about an amazing restaurant that he and his wife had recently been to, and his buddy said, "Really? What's the name of it?" And Harry was kind of stumped. He's like, "Well, what's the name of a really sweet smelling flower?" And his buddy said, do you mean a rose? Yeah, that's it. He turned to his wife and said, hey, Rose, what's the name of that really good restaurant we went to the other day? (laughs) That's right. How quickly we forget. One man said if his memory were any worse, he would be able to plan his own surprise parties. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. And another guy said, the good thing about my memory troubles is that I can listen to the same joke again and again. <laughs> it's always funny. Yeah. Thanks, Kathy. Kathy's over there going, yeah, this is totally me. So I decided that what I needed to do was change the password on my computer to incorrect. That way, if I can't remember it and I type it in wrong, a message will come up that says, your password is incorrect. <laughs> Just some thoughts. <laughs> so Peter has some things that he, he never wants us to forget. What are they? Well, remember what we talked about last week in verses 5 through 9. Cause plus effect equals assurance. Cause plus, plus effect equals assurance. The cause... A growing relationship with the living God, a fact, will produce fruit that is in keeping with the relationship that you claim, which equals an assurance that you really do have a place secured in God's eternal kingdom. But it's not about working for a position in God's house. It's about a faith that really works. God doesn't 
just save us simply to give us a ticket to heaven, but God saves us for his glory so that we might become living testimonies in this world that's looking for hope, testimonies of the power and love of God that will work in the lives of anyone who will put their trust in him. So in this, he wants to remind us why we can have confidence in the Bible. And so he gives us several things. In verse 16, he says, the power of his coming. And, and that word that's used there for power, it's the word parousia. Every time you see that word in the scriptures, you can know that it's talking about his second coming. And he says, you can have confidence because Peter says, our stories are not made up. We're not trying to trick you. We're not being deceptive because he and others saw Jesus in his majesty. Now, he could have talked about having seen Jesus after he, he rose from the dead. But, but he doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to what is commonly referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration that they saw Jesus literally take on his heavenly form. It was here that they literally heard the voice of God the Father speak from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. So you might say, well, why did he go there? Why didn't he talk about the resurrection? You would think that would be most significant. And the reason he chose to go to the Mount of Transfiguration is because here he got a glimpse of what Jesus will be when he comes again. And he says, you can believe that God's word is true because he himself and others were eyewitnesses of Jesus in his heavenly form and they heard God the Father affirm that Jesus is the real deal. All right, then you go to verse 19, and he says that, uh, that because of this, the prophetic word is confirmed. Over 300 prophecies, some written as much as 1,400 years previously, fulfilled in the life of Christ. That's, that's what he's saying. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Therefore, it isn't open to anyone's interpretation. That means we must understand God's word as God intended it. And so often in discussing the scriptures, people will want to say, uh, well, that's your interpretation. Well, that's not the goal. The goal isn't to make scripture work how I need it to work for me or want it to work for me, but I must understand it as God intended it because the scripture was given to us as men received it from God himself. We can be confident in this Bible. We can know that this is the word of God, and this is why Peter wrote this letter. Okay, so now I want to talk to you about why I believe the Bible is true. Now, it's going to start off, you're going to say, oh, brother, maybe. But hold with me, because I think by the time we're done, that this whole thing will fit together for you in a really powerful and living way. So let's get into this teaching, okay? But no, I am not an apologist. 
I, I don't want to enter into that world of scholars, but I thank God for them. If you want to dig into this further, let me direct you to people like Ravi Zacharias. Uh, he's got a great website, rzim, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries.org. Check it out. He will take you much deeper in the subject, but I have many great heroes that I love that I would direct you to. I would direct you to Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, More Than a Carpenter. Check him out. C.S. Lewis, who influenced Josh McDowell. Check out Mere Christianity. I would encourage you to check out Lee Strobel, A Case for Christ, or uh, Timothy Keller, awesome Presbyterian preacher in, in New York, back east, who has a book called Why God. Check it out. There's a lot of great stuff to be discovered. But I'm a simple guy, and so I have some simple things that I want to share with you. So the first reason that I believe the Bible is true is because it tells me it's true. <laughs> and if you're a believer today, let that encourage you. Do you know Jesus, in his teachings, quoted three-fourths of the books of the Old Testament? Which means he's affirming what was written about him, things written way prior to his, his coming. When he did this, he often referred to them as scriptures. For example, Jesus once said to those who study the scriptures, he said, you study the scriptures diligently, thinking that by them alone you will gain eternal life. He said, but you're missing the truth that the scriptures were written to point to me. That is an incredible statement, and I would challenge you to find any religious leader who ever could make, or would make, would dare to make such a claim, you won't find it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is a compound word. The first word is theo, which means God. The second word is neuster, which means breathed or air or inspired. Uh, do you realize we get our English word pneumatic from this word? Think about a pneumatic drill. It's not powered by electricity. What is it powered by? Yeah, powered by pneuma. Numos. It's powered by air or by breath. The Bible is powered by God's breath. God breathed and the word was given. You know, when, when you speak, you're, you're breathing out. And every once in a while, it's a good idea to take in a little air. I think some of us could use some help with this. Yeah. You know, we get to talking and, and we forget to breathe. Right? And we get to worrying and we forget to breathe. Right? Breathe, man. Breathe so you can, so you can speak. Now, in 2 Timothy, which is where we're working, verse 21, partway through the book, it says, We have this book because holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God spoke. Men wrote what God inspired them to write. So then someone might have a question. Well, okay, so I understand that Jesus is the living word. And if Jesus is the living word, then why do we need the scripture in writing? Well, it's a good idea to get things in writing. 
if you were to enter into a contract, you would want to get it in writing. In fact, you might have even told somebody at some point, would you please put that in writing? Valerie and I had a trust relationship with a man, a relationship we'd built over years, a man who knew the word, a man that carried himself like truly a holy man of God. And therefore, we came to a place that we decided we would entrust our life savings to him. Now, our amount was huge to us, but it was very small compared to what others had invested with him. What, what we didn't know was that he was engaging us in, in a Ponzi scheme. And the, the U.S. Uh, the Department of Investigations, they've, they've uh, tried to, to find him. They've tried to find cause against him, to press charges against him. They've contacted us over the years. Uh, but guess what? There's no paper trail. He knew what he was doing. It's a good idea to get things in writing. A doctrinal student was presenting his dissertation, but he didn't like the rules for dissertation. So each time he, he would make a point, he'd say something like, as told me by a waiter at such and such a restaurant, or as told me by a cabbie in such and such a, a city, or a bellman in such and such a hotel. Well, one of the professors uh, said, son, I'm having a little trouble with your sources here. Are you kidding me? A, a taxi driver? A, a bellman? These are not adequate sources. And so the student, you know, he, he kind of argued and he said, why does it have to be in writing? What makes it more valuable just because it's been published? And so the professor said, okay, if you want to go there, then proceed. <laughs> so the student went on with his presentation. A few weeks later, he got a call from that same professor who said, congratulations, we've passed you, you've earned your PhD, uh, just one problem, you'll have to take our word for it, you're not going to get it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's important we get things in, in writing. God has given us his written word. It's an inspired word. It's the word of God. It's reliable. It's God-breathed. And Peter says, I'm an eyewitness. So I write these things to remind you where this came from. We're not salesmen. We're not making up stories. We're not trying to deceive you. I believe the Bible is the word of God because the Bible tells me it's the word of God. No other religious writings would do that. Check it out. You'll find that to be true. The second reason I believe the Bible is true is because it validates itself. Not only does it claim to be true, but it validates itself. No other book, no other collection of books is like it. No other book makes the claims the Bible makes. No other book or collection of books is consistently validated by scientific discoveries, by archaeological digs. If you consider this, the Bible contains 66 books written by some 40 men over a period of some 1,500 years, yet it contains a single red thread that runs the duration, runs its entirety. The first part was written mid-14th century B.C. The late part was written in the latter first century A.D., 1,500 books, 
or, or sorry, 1,500 years, 66 books, 40 different writers, yet there's a major corroboration that takes place in the scriptures. That forces the question, how can this many men writing over so great a period of time have the work all culminate in the single life and in the death and of the impact of one man? That red thread, it points to Jesus Christ. The Bible is an amazing book. The Bible proves itself again and again. The whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus, starting some 1,400 years out. The New Testament tells us how those prophecies of old played out in the life of this one man. Now, let's think about these prophecies for a few moments. Both Isaiah and Micah wrote some 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah spoke specifically about a virgin birth. Micah specifically named the town of Bethlehem, an obscure place. What's with that? David wrote about the crucifixion 1,000 years before it ever happened and 500 years before the Romans ever even invented it as a tool for punishment. This is what we're talking about. The Bible validates itself. It's an amazing book. Now, those things I just spoke of are what are called messianic prophecies. There's many of them. They're very worth checking out. They're specifically about Jesus. But what about prophecies on a more general scale? Well, let me share one of my favorites because it was part of a teaching recently that we did on the book of Daniel. Catch the way this works. Daniel wrote about 500 B.C., he described a series of empires that would rise and fall in the coming days. <clears throat> he begins by talking about a great empire that would dominate the world and then suddenly be cut off. It would then divide into four empires, which would regroup into two that would form one, and it would be in the midst of that one that the Messiah would come. Now watch this. 200 years later, Alexander the Great rose to dominate the known world. At the age of 32, he was killed. He was suddenly cut off. The kingdom then divided into four kingdoms, one for each of his major generals. Those generals then merged into two kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom, which is largely modern-day Iraq, and the Ptolemaic kingdom, which is largely modern-day Egypt. But those two kingdoms would eventually become one. Anybody want to guess what the one was? The Roman Empire. And it was into that kingdom that Jesus was born. Historians are confounded by this. In fact, some scholars want to argue that there is no way that the Bible is as, or that the book of Daniel is as old as it's understood to be. The details are way too vivid. They're way too specific. They're way too sharp. It couldn't be done. But the truth is, the Bible is an amazing book. The Bible always validates itself. 
How do I know the Bible is true? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking the question, how do we know it isn't true? Some of my heroes, like Josh McDowell, C.S. Lewis, they made it their life's mission to disprove the scriptures once for all. Living as atheists, let's just take care of this whole Christianity thing. And as a result of their research, they both surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Praise God. Dr. Bruce Misker Princeton Theological Seminary says, looking at the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it's safe for any scholar to acknowledge that 99.6% of them are validated by other historical documents. What does that mean? It means that other historical writers, whether secular or spiritual, in their efforts, all write evidence that comes to the Bible's defense. The Bible is an amazing book. It's been 2,000 years since Christ came. No other book has been more studied. No other book is more scrutinized than the Bible has, and every effort validates it all the more. In fact, it's fun to pay attention to archaeological digs. It's fun to watch for new discoveries because every time a new discovery is made uh, in this arena of biblical history, the Bible is validated all the more. But let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about the mathematical odds of the prophecies of scripture for, for just a moment. 66 books, 40 different authors speaking over a period of 1,500 years, some 300 prophecies that speak about the coming life of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just to take eight of those prophecies, the odds of just eight of those prophecies, let me give you an image of what that looks like. Cover the state of Texas with silver dollars. But not just one layer of silver dollars. Let's uh, say maybe, you know, an inch deep. No. Maybe six inches deep. No. How about two feet deep? Cover the state of Texas, silver dollars. Two feet deep. Having put a red mark on the underside of just one of those silver dollars. Then blindfold someone and say, we want you to walk the state of Texas and your assignment is to pick up one silver dollar and to get the one that has the red mark on it first try. That's what we're talking about right here. And that's just eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of just one man. I believe the Bible is true, not only because it says it's true, but also because it proves itself. It validates itself. The Bible is an amazing book. <laughs> Third, I believe the Bible is true because I've come to know the author personally. Yeah, we could talk about the interesting facts about the scriptures all night and all day. I've directed you to some incredible resources. Rabbi Zacharias, listen to him. Listen to him when he goes and speaks at Ivy League schools and lectures to the, the greatest minds in the world. He's an incredible, incredible in individual. 
we can keep talking about these things, but here's the deal. All the evidence and all the arguments in the world, and even winning arguments, never won a single person to the Lord. What it comes down to is the reality that at some point, each and every one of us has to decide what we're going to do with this person, Jesus Christ. It's not my job to argue or to convince or to sway or to sell. It's simply my job to know him and out of that relationship to share with you what God is sharing uh, with me, but to understand also that these amazing scriptures have a red thread that runs the duration, goes cover to cover, and that red thread has a name. That name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the religious people who weren't accepting him these words. Listen to this. This is from John chapter 5, verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Will you come? Will you hear him calling? And will you at last surrender? Will you realize this harried, frustrated existence you're in and realize that it's the result of doing life apart from the one who created you with purpose? Will you come to Jesus? You know, uh, when you think about all this, Jesus described his own death and his own resurrection. I would challenge you to find any religious leader who made the claims Jesus did or validated it in the things he was able to do. But he said these words. He said, destroy this temple, meaning this physical body, and I will raise it again in three days. He could have said, I will raise it spiritually, and if he had said that, then we could ask the question, where is his body? But there is no body. You can't find it. It's gone. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Many witnesses saw him ascend into heaven when an angel spoke to them and said, in the same manner that you have seen him go, he will come again. So some want to argue, well, Jesus never really died. But the truth is that a Roman soldier took a spear, jabbed it up under the rib cage of his body, straight into his heart that the intellectual and medical communities affirm that the blood and the water that came forth from Jesus by that spear spear proves that that spear reached into his heart and that Jesus was indeed dead. Jesus rose again. You can go and dig up all the other religious leaders. You can still find their bones. They're still in, in, in the graves. But with all the amazing archaeological digs that are taking place, Jesus' body will never be found. He isn't there. He rose again. He's coming again. He's coming again with authority, and he will judge. He didn't come to judge the first time. He came to give life to all who would believe. But if we want to stand our own goodness and our own merits, we will stand before Jesus. We will stand before him. Consider these questions. 
How did Jesus arrange to be born into a specific family line? The line of David. How did Jesus arrange to be born in a specific town? A town where his parents didn't even live? Town of Bethlehem. How did Jesus arrange his own death and specifically his crucifixion along with two others? How did Jesus arrange for his executioners to gamble for his clothing? How did Jesus arrange to be betrayed by one of his closest followers? How did Jesus arrange to be crucified on the exact day that Jews would offer spotless lambs for their sins? How did Jesus arrange for his executioners to carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs of the two victims on either side of him, yet not break his legs? How did Jesus arrange to come back from the dead on the exact day that he said he would? Peter said, believe us. We are eyewitnesses. And so three times he writes, it is urgent that I remind you. I must remind you. The Bible is true. Jesus is the Messiah. The scriptures are reliable. The scriptures prove themselves again and again and again. The word of God changed my life. And will you let the word of God change your life? Friend, you can stand firm and you can stand with confidence that this Bible is the word of God. And because you know it's the word of God, you can know it's the word of God, you can also rest assured that Jesus is coming again. Would you please pray this prayer? Father, what is it that you're wanting me to hear from this teaching today? And whatever that is, would you, are you at a place where you will say yes to him?